0: Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Sarah Ann Minken, Director of Programs and Partnerships at the Foundation. I'm glad to welcome you today to the recording of a webinar we just did called Israeli Apartheid and the Climate Crisis. It is March 8th, 2022. Our guests are Khalil Abu Yehia, an academic writer and researcher in post-colonial literary and cultural studies. Khalil is based in Gaza, where he's an English teacher at the Palestinian Ministry of Higher Education. He recently co-authored an article published in 972 Magazine called Gaza's Race Against the Climate Breakdown. Also with us is Jessica Anderson, Deputy Director of Visualizing Impact, a team dedicated to creating data-led visual stories for social justice. Most recently, she initiated a project for Visualizing Palestine series on environmental justice in Palestine called Between a Rising Tide and Apartheid. The series was released in January, 2022. And our last guest, Manal Shakir is a climate activist, researcher and the international advocacy officer of Stop the Wall campaign, Palestine. And now to begin. As evidence of the current and future climate crisis continues to mount, Today we are looking at the dynamics of climate change for Palestinians. How do the realities of apartheid in Israel-Palestine, and in addition, Israel's siege and recurring bombardment of Gaza, affect Palestinians' access to clean water, sustainable land, consistent electricity, and food security? What bearing do these Israeli-imposed environmental limitations have on Palestinians' ability to stay on their land? And what does climate justice mean? And what could it look like for Palestinians? I am overjoyed to be joined today by three key activists and advocates. Khalil Abu Yahya, hi Khalil, is an academic writer and researcher in post-colonial literary and cultural studies. He is a Gaza-based English teacher at the Palestinian Ministry of Higher Education. And he recently co-authored an article published in 972 Magazine called Gaza's Race against the climate breakdown. Jessica Anderson is deputy director of Visualizing Impact, a team dedicated to creating data-led visual stories for social justice. Most recently, she initiated Visualizing Palestine series on environmental justice. It is called Between a Rising Tide and Apartheid, and it was released in January, 2022. And Manal Square is a climate activist, researcher, and environmental and the international advocacy officer of Stop the Wall campaign in Palestine. Please follow these panelists, follow their work. My colleagues are adding information on how to do that in the chat function. And we will also send that information out to everyone who registered for the webinar. So launching in round one, let's talk about apartheid. The Rome Statute of the ICC defines apartheid as quote, inhumane acts committed in the context context of an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group or groups committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. The UN also talks about the, and now I'm quoting, devastating consequences of climate change Rising temperatures are fueling environmental degradation, natural disasters, weather extremes, food and water insecurity, economic disruption, conflict and terrorism. Sea levels are rising, the arctic is melting, coral reefs are dying, oceans are acidifying and forests are burning. The UN calls the climate crisis, calls climate change the defining crisis of our time. Today, we are looking at the intersection between the climate crisis and the crime of apartheid. So I want to start at the beginning. What is climate apartheid? Manal, will you start with us, start start for us, please. What do you mean when you say climate apartheid in the context of Israel and Palestine? Why is it important to use that term?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Thank you, Sarah. Uh, Hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be part of this discussion. Um, To respond to your question, Sarah, um, in Palestine, climate apartheid is rooted in Israel's decades-long settler colonial policies and uh, practices to obliterate Palestinian existence while imposing Jewish supremacy on our ancestral land. Uh, In other words, climate apartheid is a tool, among too many other tools, used by Israel in order to take over Uh, Palestinian land. And climate apartheid, it manifests in every aspect of um, of Palestinians' lives. Uh, To talk about the West Bank in particular, where where I live, uh, climate apartheid manifests in the disproportionate um, distribution of natural resources, especially water, and disproportionate access um, to land. Uh, Currently, Israel controls Uh, more than 85% of the West Bank land, and more than 87% of our water resources um, in favor of the more than 500,000 Israeli illegal settlers who who live on um, our stolen land. And in particular, in the Jordan Valley and the South Hebron Hills, which are classified as uh, two of the most vulnerable uh, areas to the climate crisis, uh, Palestinians experience Israeli climate apartheid when they see Uh, Israeli water carriers that transfer water to the illegal settlements, uh, running through their communities while they are prohibiting from uh, accessing uh, uh, water for their daily human use, uh, for animal husbandry and for um, agriculture. Uh, Palestinians in these areas are even like criminalized uh, when they try to access their water resources. For instance, instance, in 2020, um, uh, the Palestinian community leader, Abu Sakr, and his son from uh, the Bedouin community of Khirbet al-Hadidiyya, they were arrested, uh, interrogated, and tortured for days by the Israeli occupation authorities because they were accused of stealing water, because they tried to access their own water resources. And uh, another aspect, as I mentioned um, at the beginning, of Israeli uh, climate apartheid is how it uh, r- restricts Palestinians' access to their land, agricultural uh, and grazing areas um, in the Jordan Valley and the South Hebron Hills. Israel has been systematically limiting uh, Palestinian shepherds' access to large swaths of agriculture. Uh, of sorry. Um, of grazing areas using different measures i mean uh, in the in the past years it used to uh, to shoot uh, palestinians herds, uh, confiscate them arrest palestinians um, assaulting them and now uh, israel is building uh, more and more israeli uh, shepherd settler outposts in uh, in these areas um, in order to allocate uh, all of the grazing lands um, to be used only by settlers who usually uh, brutally assault Palestinians. So this threatens their food security because animal husbandry is a main source of income. And also it, it, it decimates their, um, their, um, their lifestyle, I mean, their, their pastoral lifestyle. Uh, and it creates a coercive environment where Palestinians are unable to adapt to the climate uh, a crisis uh, effectively, in order to, um, in order to displace them from their land, uh, at the end. And this is why I think it's really important to use the term climate apartheid in particular, because it highlights uh, the interlocking structures of uh, uh, of apartheid, uh, settler colonialism, and. Uh, the environmental degradation, and it also highlights the uh, the ecological aspect of Israeli uh, settler colonial project. Thank
0: you. Thank you so much, Manal. So you said that so um, succinctly, the interlocking oppressions of environmental degradation, Israeli occupation, and settler colonialism. Thank you for all of that. Jessica, I want to ask you the same question. Um, what do you mean when you say climate apartheid? Why is it important to use this term and are there other framings here that you also think are relevant?
2: Thank you so much Sarah Ann. and I want to thank everybody who's here and also Foundation for Middle East Peace for hosting us um, and Manal you said it so well when you got straight into settler colonialism as the as the root cause of all of this and as well what you said about interlocking structures. I really love that. I want to add to that by saying I think that it's worth noting that the term climate apartheid is sometimes used in conversations about climate change in a different way than how we use it within the Palestinian context. So I think that's important to note. And what I mean is that I've seen that sometimes human rights experts will use the term climate apartheid as a kind of alarm bell. Um, so it's it's more of a warning that the climate crisis could lead to even deeper global inequality and even kind of wider gulfs between people that are able to adapt to climate change and people who are not if we don't adopt a rights-based approach. And to give an example of that kind of use, um, the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights um, in 2019, it was Philip Alston, And he said, perversely, while people in poverty are responsible for just a fraction of global emissions, they bear the brunt of climate change and have the least capacity to protect themselves. We risk climate apartheid or we risk a climate apartheid scenario where the wealthy pay to escape overheating hunger and conflict while the rest of the world is left to suffer. So, in the context of Palestine, we're using the term a little bit differently because we're starting with the fact that Palestinians already live under a system of apartheid um, and, they, and they live under this system in a part of the world that's warming faster than the global average. So that's kind of where what Manel said about these interlocking systems comes into play. So we're using the term apartheid to describe something very specific a specific system of racial domination and oppression that in this context is controlling the distribution of both resources and risks between Israelis and Palestinians that are living in this very small geographical area but are experiencing climate change very differently. Um, so before we even get to climate change, before that phrase even enters the conversation, Israeli settler colonialism and apartheid as a tool of settler colonialism colonialism has made it so that Palestinians are experiencing food insecurity, water scarcity, housing shortages, poverty, landlessness, poor infrastructure, and de-development. And so you have to then consider the impacts of climate change as an added layer on top of all of that, um, or a threat multiplier, as we say. So in this region, the threat of climate change, we're talking about temperatures that are projected to rise higher than the global average, a decrease in rainfall, changing rainfall patterns, sea level rise and more extreme weather events. And so at the intersection of these two crises, Israeli laws, policies and practices really increase Palestinian climate vulnerability as well as undermining adaptive capacity and denying, you know, by denying self-determination, controlling land and resources, fragmenting Palestinians, dictating development and dictating the movement of people and goods. And then as far as other framings that are useful, stop me if I'm going
0: too long because it's it's uh, hard to keep track of time, but please I think Continue, this has all been very helpful in your explanation of how climate apartheid is usually used versus how we're using it, how, how it's used with Palestine has been so helpful and so important, so please go on. I'm glad. So I think other framings that are really useful, Manel got
2: right to the heart of it when she talked, she spoke about settler colonialism and the denial of Palestinian self-determination, because that just points us directly to the root cause of climate apartheid. And when we're trying to have a climate justice conversation, I think what defines climate justice is looking for the root causes and trying to center communities that are most impacted. So I think that is really important. And then also Mazen Kumsia and Mohammed Abu Sarhan of the Palestine Museum of Natural History in Bethlehem have a great article that I recommend that talks about environmental Nakba, which I think was a it was a really interesting framing because it kind of captures how settler colonialism is ecological domination, that they are one in the same, they go hand in hand, one does not come without the other. And so the Nakba, we know that it violently disrupted the human geography of Palestine, but sometimes we don't think about how it also violently disrupted the Palestinian environment and the human relationships with the environment. So, and then my last thought is that in visualizing Palestine's recent series on environmental justice in Palestine, we tried to draw on a number of different concepts from the environmental justice scholarship and from environmental justice movements and to illustrate those concepts with case studies from Palestine. So those were climate vulnerability, green colonialism, environmental racism, and colonial extraction, some of which I'll hopefully get a chance to speak about a little more later today. But those concepts, I think, were important because they really helped position Palestine within this global conversation. Um, and kind of within uh, Palestine is still often exceptionalized in progressive spaces, but this really helps us to have a discussion about environmental justice that includes Palestine.
0: Great, thank you so much. That was all extremely helpful. And I want to really strongly recommend that everyone watching and everyone listening go to Visualizing Palestine and and look at the resources that you produced and that you mentioned. And we also uh, will have the links posted on our website um, so everyone will have, have access to them. And Khalil, thank you for your patience. I want to come to you, please. What do you mean by the term climate apartheid? And can you also tell us what is unique and special about Palestine? In your article, which I mentioned published in 972, uh, you wrote about Gaza as a quote, climate hotspot within a hotspot. So Tell us more, please.
3: Okay, first, thank you for <coughs> hosting me. And actually, um, this makes the task harder uh, since two of the most artic- articulated uh, activists uh, talk about climate apartheid I really adopt what you are <coughs> talking about. It's great. And you hit the point. Um, but uh, let me, before I start, clarify that I'm from Gaza, um, which is which has been suffering from Israelis, uh, both siege. Um, so one of the concerns of this appalling siege is the constant power outage and the internet as well. So, if my voice is breaking out, please forgive me. And thanks to Israel apartheid, I'm not responsible for that. Um, okay, uh, so, uh, climate to get to the point, climate apartheid for me is, um, any act that manipulates and exploits climate suffering of a people in order to demonize, colonize, dehumanize, oppress, and deny the rights of that nation because of their color, race, ethnicity, or religion. Um, But in our situation, Israel doesn't only manipulate climate change to further uh, oppress the Palestinian people, but it also prevents them, the Palestinian people from using their natural resources in combating climate change. So we are not only besieged, but we are also prevented from using anything, any use, um, any means to counter anything. Uh, So um, why do I think that it's important for us to call it um, apartheid, to call a spade a spade? Um, Well, for me, and under international law, if we say that um, it is apartheid, this means apartheid is one of the greatest crimes against humanity under the international law. And if we, if we say that what Israel is doing regarding the climate issue is apartheid, this means that Israel has to be held accountable um, and uh, that Israel is going against the international law. This will put Israel in the hot water, um, rather calling it just, you know, uh, cubation. Um, which has, like, some outlet, outlets in the international law. Uh, regarding Gaza, um, which asked me about the hotspot within a hotspot, um, well, uh, let, me, let me clarify that um, I am in favor of not uh, differentiating between Gaza, the West Bank, um, Jerusalem, uh, 1948, because um, I think all of the components of the Palestinian people are suffering from the same multi-tiered system of oppression, institutionalized multi-tiered system of oppression in different forms. For example, in uh, the West Bank, as my uh, friend Banal said, uh, confiscating land and other things. And in Jerusalem, uh, their homes are being demolished. And in Gaza, other forms. Uh, But I'll be specifically talking about Gaza uh, since uh, I'm from Gaza. Well, I consider that Gaza is the screenshot of the Nakba and there is a, a misunderstanding uh, in the world that uh, the Nakba is something and then we have intifadas and wars. No, um, Israeli settler colonial project started you no know, before the Nakba and it has been, um, you know, operating and the processing since now. It has never stopped. And Gaza is a clear evidence. Jerusalem is a clear evidence. The West Bank as well. Um, The, uh, okay. Okay, can you hear me?
0: Absolutely, we hear you. Okay. Please continue.
3: Okay, okay. Just a second, because I want to change.
0: Okay, Now we see you also, but we hear you. Now we don't hear you, Khalil. I hope that you can return to us. As you said to us, the okay internet. sorry there
3: you are okay okay uh, Thank you. okay so so gaza has been suffering from uh, this israeli medieval hermetic appalling siege since more than 15 years uh israel has been doing that against the international law uh, you know when i think about that i like to compare i like to compare it to the south african you know climate issues um when our uh, South African comrades visited us in Gaza in 2006, I think 2007, they told us that what are you experiencing in Gaza compared to to what we have been experiencing in, uh, uh, you know, apartheid South Africa? What we have been experiencing is a picnic, and the United Nations uh, said that Gaza will be unlivable in 2020, and now we are into in, in 2000. Uh, 22. So, what is special about Palestine and Gaza is that the hotspot is a hotspot in the world. Everyone is worried about that issue, and Gaza is not only worrying about climate change. It's not left alone to with its natural resources to fight climate change, but it's also um, colonized. It is right. Everything inhumane against international law is being committed against the Palestinian people. And your conference and your event is important because, as Beatrice Bivak says, can the subaltern speak? And we cannot speak for ourselves. And we, we need to be given uh, microphones to be, you know, to be here. I thank you so much for this event. Thank you, Khalil. Um,
0: Thank you for wanting to take the microphone when we were able to offer it to you. It is really an honor to be able to have you speak here today and, and join us and honored also to have Manal and Jessica as well and to be able to, to speak on this topic. And um, Khalil, you, you, your, your screen is going in and out but we can hear you beautifully. And so I hope that you, hope you can hear us and stay with us. There you are again. Um, and I, I want to stay with you actually for another moment and, and ask you specifically to speak on, on Gaza. Um, I really appreciated that you just gave us the, the broader vision of, of Palestine in, in total, um, but, but I wanna ask you to focus on Gaza. In, in your article, um, you described, and now I'm, I'm quoting your article back to you, ever worsening shortages of water and electricity, catastrophic flooding in dense urban areas, food insecurity exacerbated by drastic temperature increases, reduction in overall rainfall, the long-term impact of toxic chemicals. This is the bleak near future that awaits the Gaza Strip. And I want to ask you to talk to us about what is important in looking at Gaza specifically through a climate lens. What do we learn about apartheid? when we look at Gaza through the climate lens. And, and so please tell us, tell us more about Gaza through this climate lens. And I'll add one last thing, which is that we've already, uh, I want to, to bring in questions from the audience and people are asking, specifically talk to us about the water situation,
3: please. Okay. Okay. Uh, so thank you for this important question. Uh, I want to say some facts uh, before I go on. Uh, According to uh, scientific researches, sewage has infiltrated uh, Gaza's aquifer and is flowing into the sea. 97% of Gaza's uh, water is unfit for human use and drinkable. Polluted water is um, uh, a leading cause of the child mortality in Gaza. Um, and Israel prevents Palestinians from using more than 20% of Gaza's arable land um, and target uh, Israeli uh, and target Palestinian well, uh, wells, uh, water wells in Gaza. Um, and let me remind you that the UN says that Gaza said that Gaza will be livable in 2020, and that was based on scientific, you know, uh, looking and scientific researches. Um, what's important in Gaza here? Um, I will be saying it like in practical. From a practical point of view, uh, my father is suffering from malignant cancer. My uncle uh, passed away because of cancer, and two of my friends passed away because of cancer. And cancer was not caused by accident, by coincidence. It was caused by um, Israel. Israel has been uh, attacking Gaza uh, since you know. Uh, the beginning of uh, you know since two thousand, um, but particularly two thousand and eight, they attacked Gaza, uh, killed thousands of people, uh, destroyed wells and lands and trees. Uh, to, as if, as if that not um, as if that uh, as if that was not enough. In two thousand and and twelve, they came back and they bombed us, attacked us, attacked our wells, our trees. As if that was not enough, they came back in 2014 and the same in 2021, because they know that the world um, is sleeping and there is, you know, an international conspiracy of silence against the Palestinian people. I'm saying about governments, um, uh, but thanks to the grassroots organizations that have been helping us, you know. So um, we discovered, and again, upon scientific researches, that Gaza has been bombing Gaza with Poisons uh, and chemical uh, materials um, that cause problems in the land and in the water. So, for example, they are not pumping the water wells with traditional rockets, but with rockets with chemical materials, and this, you know, infiltrates to other um, water, you know, aquifers. And when uh, we came after the wars and we wanted to water our our trees, they. The water is poisoned, so the trees are poisoned, and the fruits are poisoned, and what we eat is poisoned uh, with, you know, internationally uh, forbidden weapons. They are using. Uh, we in the war, in the war, uh, we had, like we went through experiences of smelling uh, like bad things, poisons. Uh, And when we called, you know, the the Red Crescent, they called us that Israel declared your area as a closed military area, so we cannot do anything to you. Uh, So it is like a slow motion genocide as uh, one of the Israeli, our friend comrades uh, called it, uh, a slow motion genocide, killing the Palestinian people. Now, uh, the number of conservations rises from tens and then to hundreds and then to thousands of people who are suffering from malignant cancers uh, because of eating, you know, uh, poisoned fruit and drinking uh, drinking poisoned water. And now Israel uh, has made Gaza an open-air prison, which means that nobody is allowed to go outside Gaza, even to our lands, Jerusalem, for example, to get treatment. And Moreover they don't allow the medicine to come to Gaza inside Gaza for example my father is suffering they, they don't allow him to go there and he might uh, he might die dies die any minute because of this you know inhumane apartheid this gives us an idea that uh, climate apartheid poisoning water greenwashing israeli crimes and cancer and apartheid and incubation can never be separated i hope that i gave you um, uh, I know that uh, time is limited.
0: Thank you, Khalil. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry for the loss of your family members and your, and your um, friends, and I wish your father a full and speedy recovery. Um, Manala, I, I want to turn to you, please. Um, one fundamental aspect of, of occupation and apartheid is Israel's conquest of land. And I wanna ask you to speak to us about how Israel affects Palestinians relationships to land and to their land and how um, and how that relates to environmental destruction and environmental crisis.
1: Yeah, sure, thank you, Sarah. Um, I think Khalil um, has just described how horrible the situation is when when a healthy relationship between, uh, between humans and the environment is cut, how this has catastrophic effects on, on both the human and the non-human. Um, Jessica at the beginning also mentioned something really important about how before the world started talking about climate change, Israeli started destroying um, destroying our environment. And I here want to get back to uh, before 1948, I mean, historically, for centuries, we managed to live uh, sustainably with um, with uh, with nature and with an unhuman world. I mean, and personally speaking, I'm a fellahi. I'm a peasant woman um, from, um, a pal- from a village in the West Bank, and my family, which is um, a farming family, taught me that the relationship with an unhuman is based on reciprocity and on uh, interdependence. We, I, I, I was never taught to devalue the non-human uh, world or to um, uh, to conceive it in dualistic terms in, uh, in really, I mean to conceive the non-human in dualistic terms in relation to uh, the human. Uh, but all of that has totally changed uh, in 1948 when Israel was, was created on the ruins of more than 500 Palestinian uh, villages and um, towns which resulted in the displacement of almost a million Palestinians who have been languishing in uh, in overcrowded refugee camps uh, for more than seven decades now so uh, after 1948 Israel re- uh, uprooted too many of the uh, trees that the native trees, Usually, most of the time, they used to be fruitful trees uh, that Palestinians used to depend on uh, to sustain their life. And these trees were replaced by uh, non-native pine trees that are unfruitful. So uh, the relationship with the land has changed or the purpose of the land has changed. The land, what, what was used to be like a source of food security for Palestinians has become just like, uh, a, a green space, a recreational space that is seen in the uh, uh, forests planted by the Jewish National Fund, mainly uh, on the destroyed Palestinian uh, villages. And uh, at that time, it, it was challenging. What was ch- most challenging for Israel is uh, to, um, to try to disseminate the pastoral lifestyle of Palestinian Bedouins because they posed um, a real obstacle to Israel to territorially expand because uh, their lifestyle uh, entails that they need to move uh, regularly from one place to the other and be present on uh, large swaths of the land. So what Israel did in 1950 uh, was to ban the Palestinian black goat, which was necessary for that, pastoral land-based lifestyle, because the, black, the, the Palestinian black goat is the native goat. And, uh, it, it, it can cope with the harsh weather conditions and decline and reach to mountainous areas. So by law, Israel banned the black goat, uh, justifying that uh, it, it harms the environment. And now uh, in the absence of the black goat, which is necessary to, to clean undergrowth, and the uh, fire susceptible pine trees that are spread everywhere in present-day Israel, uh, and it, the, coinciding with the increase uh, in temperatures, now the region is hit by more and more, more wildfires. Uh, in 2016, uh, um, more than 1,500 uh, fires um, spread across the country. And now Israel has recently announced that it will increase the number of the black good because they realized it's important in, uh, in protecting the environment and in, uh, in the sustainable uh, relationship with, uh, with nature. So that's about, I mean, just that a historical overview about how Israel has got the relationship between Palestinians and their environment. Uh, which was characterized by sustainability, and um, in the occupied territories in 1967, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and uh, and, uh, and the Gaza Strip. Uh, israel has been using too many different ways in order to cut the healthy relationship uh with uh with the land some were mentioned by uh khalil already uh, others also um, in, in the west bank that we see include uh, the destruction the systematic destruction of palestinians agricultural lands uh by um this can be uh, it can be realized through uh dumping uh w- um, toxic Toxic waste um, uh, into Palestinian agricultural lands by moving the most polluting industries from Israel to the West Bank by closing Israeli uh, quarries inside Israel while depending uh, depending uh, on Palestinian quarries for for the stone industry. Um, and to keep it prosper. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is, uh, as I mentioned, Israel controls uh, Palestinians access or restricts Palestinians access to their uh, their grazing areas in the South Hebron hills and in, uh, in the Jordan Valley. And this is also compounded with a decline in the rainfall and, uh, and the, the increase in temperatures. Uh, so Palestinians may find it hard to, uh, to graze their, uh, their herds. So they end up overgrazing in the very limited spaces av- available to them. And this results in the desertification uh, of large swaths of, uh, of of lands, of grazing lands, and this uh, this threatens the the biodiversity in the Jordan Valley and uh, in the South uh, Hebron Hills. Uh, this is this is not to mention the how Israeli uh, s- uh, settlements uh, discharge wastewater into Palestinian agricultural land. Um, also, uh, last but not least, the, the construction of the apartheid wall, most of it inside the West Bank, in order to annex our land, has also resulted in uh, detrimental environmental destruction, uh, where Palestinians are unable to access their agricultural lands. And these agricultural lands have been neglected for years now. Uh, they've, become, uh, they've become wasteland. Uh, so that's another aspect of of the environmental crisis that Israel is uh, is causing and um, is exacerbating.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Manel. That was so helpful um, and so thorough. Thank you. And I, I want to look at it at a, a different angle of uh, the environmental crisis, of the climate crisis. Jessica, will you talk to us please about food sovereignty and why food sovereignty is such an important principle of, of climate justice and of course what that looks like in in palestine
2: yes i would love to uh, actually food sovereignty is a topic that we're working on for an upcoming visual so i'm currently immersed in that and i think building on what manel has just been saying about the separation between palestinians and their land one of the kind of stats that i think represents that is the food insecurity figure that 69% of palestinians in gaza and 33% of Palestinian households in the West Bank are food insecure, and there's a high reliance as well, especially in Gaza on food aid. So just to kind of start by defining food sovereignty using the Via Campesina definition, food sovereignty is the right of all peoples to share healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods and their right to define their own food and agriculture systems. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about food sovereignty. And I think that it offers a really powerful and helpful set of principles and framework for thinking about alternatives to um, particularly industrial agriculture, which is a major driver of climate change as well as hunger and poverty. And so food sovereignty along with, with agroecology, Allows us to sort of center small-scale farmers who produce and feed a large, uh, large majority of the world's people, and who are, you know, hunting, fishing, gathering, producing uh, food in local at the local level. Um, and so that's kind of just to frame food sovereignty as a whole. But when we look at how Israel Israeli policies deny Palestinian food sovereignty. At the high level that has to do with everything that we've been talking about in terms of dispossession of land and forced displacement, particularly from rural areas. Um, So kind of the forced urbanization of Palestinians and and as Manal was speaking extensively about the the loss of the, the Falahi kind of history and traditions. Um, Also, of course, the appropriation of water and the denial of freedom of movement and control over imports and exports. So those are some of the big things um, that we're looking at when we look at how Israel restricts Palestinian food sovereignty. Um, Both Menal and Khalil have given quite a few examples of specific restrictions. And I'll just kind of fill a few (laughs) gaps of things that I noted down that they haven't mentioned already. With the Black Goat Act, I I wanted to add to what Manal said by just noting that in the 1970s, Israel established a Green Patrol, which was a paramilitary unit that went around and seized and slaughtered flocks. And so I think that that kind of just illustrates the militaristic approach to, I mean, even if you believe that the Black Goat did pose an environmental hazard, there's different ways of, of responding to that. And this was a very militarized, very violent approach that reflects the attitude toward the Palestinians who were the people that possessed and, you know, herded the black goats. There's also the issue of criminalization of edible plants. Um, So again, like, I think these examples, it's important to note that they affect all Palestinians. It doesn't matter what fragment of the territory you live in, what citizenship or identity status you hold, everyone is subject to restrictions on food sovereignty. So, you know, Palestinian citizens of Israel today, there's still a ban on the collection of edible plants like Zater, Akub, and Sage. That also applies to the West Bank. There's been court cases against Palestinians, and if you're interested in that, I recommend the work of Rabia el He's written a lot about the court cases and the issue of criminalization of edible plants. One thing I came across that I found interesting was the quota system that is used by the Israeli Ministry of Agriculture. So they uphold the quota system, and Palestinian farmers who hold Israeli citizenship were completely excluded from that system until very recently, 2012, um, which is, to me, it's just uh, very striking that that's the case. And then in 2012, they were allocated 0.02% of the milk quota, and 0.03% of the egg quota. So there's market factors going on here. Um, There's also been in the West Bank, military orders that have required Palestinians to obtain permits to plant certain crops. And Manel spoke about the issues of farmland that falls into the so-called seam zone of the wall. I'll just add to that by saying that Palestinian farmers who continue to try and farm that land, have to get a permit to access it, and Israel denied 73% of those permit requests in 2020. Um, With the water issue, something that, uh, a fact that I found interesting is just because of the Israel's control over water resources and the development of water infrastructure, a large majority of land cultivated by Israeli settlers is irrigated. Uh, irrigated crops, whereas Palestinians only about 6% of their land is irrigated. Um, So you see that Israeli settlers are practicing certain intensive forms of agriculture that Palestinians, even if they wanted to, simply can't because of the water restrictions. And then in Gaza, there's the issue of uh, with the blockade and the siege, the effect on fishers and people who make their living from fishing Um, In 2019 to 2020, there were 133 shooting attacks by the Israeli Navy on fishermen, um, which wounded and killed Palestinian fishers and damaged boats and equipment. And then the spraying of herbicides over the Gaza Strip is another issue that Israel does that to clear the vegetation, to create a kind of clear buffer zone. But those herbicides also drift and they damage thousands of dunams of crops. And a forensic architecture has done some really interesting work to visualize the flow of those herbicides um, on the wind. And then the market controls again, imports and exports. Gaza can't export a lot of the produce um, that it does produce. It can't reach the Israeli market let alone the international market and has limited ability to reach even the West Bank market. So lots of issues with food sovereignty there. And I think just to wrap up, when we think about what what Palestine looks like in a world where there is food sovereignty, um, it's some of the principles of food sovereignty. I mean, land rights is at the heart of it. So land rights, are, is a pillar of climate action in multiple different contexts where indigenous people are being pushed off of their land. So it's not just Palestine. And that means, of course, decolonization, which is, is a, a big one. It's not, there's no easy fixes here, but also self, bringing self-determination into the, into the equation. Palestinians really need the ability to control their own agricultural policy to control their own resources and to set their own trade policy and uh, that would be crucial for for a world where you know Palestinians can sustain themselves and have food sovereignty and where they no longer rely on food aid which really kind of perpetuates food insecurity it offers temporary relief but it can't change the underlying systems that lead to food insecurity and then finally i think preserving agricultural heritage is really important because palestine is part of Palestine is a part of the Fertile Crescent, and it's a region that has a very long history of agricultural production and innovation. So Palestinians have practiced rain-fed agriculture, they have traditions of foraging, they hold actually a lot of essential heirloom seed varieties that are considered globally valuable for preserving agrobiodiversity. So also I think we when we think about food sovereignty, we, sovereignty, we have to think about protecting Palestinian agricultural heritage.
0: Fantastic, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you for that um, very thorough and detailed answer. Also, um, I want to thank you all for for the the um, the the thoroughness and the detail with which you are addressing these questions around uh, the climate crisis and climate vulnerability and um, and degradation and oppression and and um, And I actually want us to, to, we've been talking, you've been talking um, in such detail. And I wanna ask you to take a step back for a moment and let's talk about frameworks. Let's talk about um, how we think about climate apartheid a little bit. You have all spoken about settler colonialism or decolonization. Um, Khalil brought in uh, Gayatri Spivak, which um, for anyone who has read post-colonial theory, You, I hope, got the reference and it is International Women's Day. So um, thank you for bringing in a feminist scholar, Khalil. Um, I want you to talk to us about colonialism. I want you to tell us please what you mean when you talk about colonialism in the context of Palestine and to what extent does colonialism shape or impact the climate crisis?
3: Um, Okay, thank you for this very significant question actually colonialism in its traditional definition is the domination of one nation um, over other nation um, taking advantage of their uh, color uh, ethnicity religious you know affiliation and so on and so forth but in the palestinian uh, context we have a settler colonialism which is the replacement of one nation and the in the case of palestine the ethnic cleansing of the palestinian people Uh, And they bring of another nation in order to uh, occupy uh, the land which has been, uh, you know, uh, occupied before them by another another people because of uh, race, ethnicity, religious and so on and so forth. What makes climate crisis... Uh, different in Palestine is that we the Palestinian people are not only fighting and combating climate crisis and the climate change, but we are also uh, combating uh, the last settler colonial um, regime and system uh, in the area. We are fighting the fourth strongest army in the world, while in the military equation we have nothing uh, compared to Israel. Uh, the Palestinians have uh, been fighting with the rockets and, you know, nothing compared to Israel. Uh, in, this, in this equation, the Palestinians are being suppressed, oppressed, and dehumanized, regardless of the international law and, you know, uh, the nations of the world calling for ju- the justice of the Palestinian people. Um, colonialism, in this, in this sense, prevents the Palestinian people from furthering um, their uh, efforts to fight uh, you know the climate change Um, and israel through its policies has been you know making sure that the palestinians are not able to uh, to fight anything for example um, in the wars, they are particularly um, attacking the palestinian uh, infrastructure uh, you know uh, everything that is related to electricity. The only uh, power plant in Gaza has been attacked. You know hundreds, if not thousands, of dunums have been you know bulldozed in in Gaza by the Israel occupation forces, creating unemployment. High rates uh, unemployment rates uh, in the Palestinian you know community, especially that the Israeli authorities know that know, know that the most of the Palestinian people you know depend mostly on f- uh, farming as their you know main source of income and creating you know a vulnerable Palestinian community through their colonial um, policies. So what is important here is that if we want to decolonize these practices. We have also to decolonize, you know, climate change. There is no separation between, you know, fighting climate change and, you know, uh, fighting injustice and uh, occupation because they are inseparable. You cannot, you know, decolonize the Palestinian land while while our natural resources are uh, colonized. Uh, I cannot call myself uh, in a free Palestine while I cannot. Uh, Drink uh, a drinkable water, a healthy, clear water. So, what is also important here that the climate issue uh, in um, in the frame of the Palestinian uh, colonized land is not only the responsibility of the Palestinian people. And we, when we are fighting colonialism and uh, apartheid, uh, climate apartheid in Palestine is not only for the Palestinian people, but it's rather about, you know, all the the humans in the world because we are, at the end of the day, we are humans and we are fighting uh, in in the same thing. And I cannot imagine myself, you know, fighting to prevent injustice in Palestine and allowing, uh, you know, climate apartheid to happen uh, in Ukraine or in any any other, uh, you know, place in the world.
0: Thank you so much, Khalil. Jessica, I want, to, I want to move to you um, with the same question uh, about colonialism and to uh, your new climate resource between a rising tide and apartheid draws on colon- colonialism as a frame. Um, you talk about green colonialism and colonial extraction. Um, I want you to, to talk to us, please, about what those concepts mean uh, in the context of Palestine. And, and also you talk about greenwashing. And um, we've We brought in that term a little bit. I think uh, Khalil mentioned it a little while ago, um, and we need to we need to hear more. So, please. Thanks, Sarah. And so, yeah, so these visuals we were
2: exploring, you know, different dimensions of colonialism, different kind of typologies of colonialism and with the term green colonialism, it's not separate from settler colonialism or from any other type of colonialism. It's just a way of describing a certain colonial phenomenon. So I, I heard the term green colonialism for the first time, actually, in the context of reading about another indigenous community, the Sami people of northern Scandinavia. And in that context, they use the term green colonialism to talk about a struggle against corporate wind energy projects in that region that exacerbate existing colonial losses Um, and I just I found it to be such an insightful analytical lens for understanding how um, projects that claim to mitigate climate change challenges are impacting people that are already you know experiencing harm in the in the existing systems so in our green colonial visual we defined you know we use the term green colonialism to describe a broad variety of policies and practices and programs, both governmental and by organizations that end up harming the land and rights of indigenous people in the name of environmental protection or climate mitigation. So really just reinforcing the colonial legacies. And specifically the case study we used for that looked at Israeli parks and forests and recreation sites So there are 182 depopulated Palestinian villages that are located in Israeli parks, forests, and recreation sites. And what Manel was speaking about earlier with the planting of pine trees, uh, a lot of these sites are planted over, uh, essentially. So there's a phenomenon of erasure going on both in terms of the ecology of these sites and also the narratives and the fact that by being declared um, a nature area, Palestinians can't return to those sites. So we also, we wanted to emphasize both that history, but also that this is not, it's not just a historical issue. It's an ongoing issue, the sort of ongoing environmental knock, but to go back to to that idea um, that Israel continues to use environmental policy as a tool of settler colonialism, which we saw very clearly earlier this year with the images that were coming out of the Naqab and the protests there against the JNF forestation project that was pushing, Palestinian Bedouins off their land. So we see that these initiatives have the power to displace people. They also have the power to kind of delineate spatial segregation to create more um, segregated environments which we see a lot in East Jerusalem with the way that parks are established to kind of connect settlements or to cut, um, to cut the, the territorial kind of unity of different Palestinian neighborhoods. And also by declaring a park, it's a it's a very easy way to restrict development when you, so in the West Bank, large areas of land have been declared nature reserves. And that means that Palestinians cannot, you know, pursue development in those areas. So there's also other, you know, there's other issues that you can talk about when it comes to green colonialism. So going back, the, the wind story that I mentioned is where I first encountered this term actually shows up in Palestine um, and, and Israel as well, particularly here in the occupied Syrian Golan Heights where there's a wind project going in um, by a company called Enerjix, And there's a lot of coercion happening around how land is being allocated from Syrian farmers who've already lost so much of their land to Israeli colonization. And now that's being kind of pulled into this, this drive to create wind energy. So corporations are really important to consider when we think about green colonialism and when we think about conservation, because corporations, as we know, never fail to take advantage of a crisis to consolidate their, their power and, and to find a way to make profit. So this kind of, I think, also helps us to be more wary of the false solutions that are sometimes put forward to climate change that end up just putting more power in the hands of people, that, people in groups that are, have already caused harm. So for green colonialism, it doesn't matter whether the harm is intentional or unintentional, it just matters that it's perpetuated, that colonial harm is perpetuated. But when we talk about greenwashing, the other term that you mentioned, and that comes up in that visual, we are talking about something more deliberate and kind of cynical, which is, you know, the use of environmental projects as a cover, basically. Um, And in, in the context of Israel, the Israeli government and Zionist organizations portraying themselves as as environmentally friendly when at the same time, they're responsible for committing human rights abuses against Palestinians, which come with environmental devastation as we've been discussing. So the JNF is kind of the the most prominent example of this, Uh, It presents itself as an environmental charity, but it upholds a discriminatory mandate. It's a quasi state organization um, and it's actively participating in ethnic cleansing. So then final note, we also have another visual that focuses on uh, colonial extraction through a case study of Israeli quarrying in the West Bank. And so that's kind of introducing another sort of typology of colonialism into the conversation because um, colonial extraction is kind of what you think of as classic colonialism or, you know, exploitative colonialism where a government is a colonial entity is going and its its main purpose is to extract raw material or labor um, from the colonized territory and bring it back to, you know, to its own state. Um, so we see that the, this kind of phenomenon exists in this context as well, as well and that different types of colonialism um, can, can coexist hand, hand in hand, that there's features of different sorts of typologies that we see. Um, and with the issue of quarrying in particular, it's just a very familiar story where you have resources that are being taken from one community for the benefit of another community, and it leaves behind both uh, a legacy of de-development in the colonized territory and wealth consolidation in the, colonized, uh, the colonizing <laughs> territory. So, um, and again, here multinational corporations are involved. Look into Heidelberg Cement if you're more in, if you're interested in, in how they're involved in quarrying and how they're paying the Israeli government and Israeli settlements for the the right to quarry Palestinian stone. So, a lot to look into there. Uh, but I'll pause here for now.
0: Great, thank you so much, Jessica. That was a lot, and and that was um, extremely helpful. And I want to ask. Manal, to, to, um, to dig in deeper on, on in one specific direction that Jessica went. Jessica mentioned the JNF, the Jewish National Fund. And um, Manal, talk to us, please, about the, the role of the Jewish National Fund, the JNF, in greenwashing Israeli environmental degradation.
1: Sure, thank you, Sarah. Yeah, Jessica has already mentioned um, really important facts about the JNF and how it's a trailblazer in Israeli greenwashing. Um, so um, the JNF calls itself Israel's lar- largest uh, green organization um, and the oldest green organization in the world by being proud of um, its afforestation projects um, that, uh, that were, were planted to cover up, um, destroyed Palestinian villages as um, as jessica mentioned and uh these trees uh, like stood that the Jenna planted stood as soldiers to prevent palestinian refugees from um returning back to their lands uh i mean the 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 refugees who um who were uh, expelled from their land in the mass ethnic cleansing campaign uh Held by the Zionist gangs between um, 1947 and 1949. Also, the JNF planted these uh, non-native pine trees uh, in order to realize the Zionist eco-imagination of Palestine as um, as a European colony in the Middle East, as uh, to make it to make the landscape more. Familiar to uh, these Jewish immigrants who mainly came from Europe, in addition to other many different purposes uh, uh, to plant these uh, trees, including uh, greenwashing the the ethnic cleansing of uh, uh, of Palestinians. And uh, as Jessica said, the JNF continues to uh, to commit m- more more crimes against. Uh, against Palestinians and continues to entrench Israeli apartheid and settler colonialism because this is the sole aim for which the JNF was created in 1901. Uh, for instance, uh, the JNF, uh, in addition to the uh, to its attempt to its attempts to ethnically cleanse uh, the 100. 1,000 uh, Palestinians living in the unrecognized villages uh, in, uh, in nakab uh, through planting trees. Uh, the JNF also uh, supports the illegal settlement enterprise in the West Bank, um, be it directly through uh, claiming the ownership of Palestinian property and uh, and land in, in Bethlehem, uh, in Jerusalem and in other parts of the West Bank, or indirectly by uh, by supporting uh, Israeli settler organizations that build and expand illegal settlements. Some of these settler organizations uh, also support uh, support settlers, fanatic settlers, like uh, the group that is called the Hilltop Youth, which, uh, which leads uh, violent campaigns against Palestinian farmers and against uh, Palestinian villagers. And uh, the JNF supports settler organizations that particularly uh, build and, um, and support uh, ecological settlements in the West Bank or agricultural settlements, which is another form of um, a green colonialism. Uh, and another thing about the JNF is that it takes part in perpetuating the uh, the refugee situation of millions of Palestinians because the Jewish National Fund owns uh, uh, approximately 13% or a bit more than 13% of the land in Israel and the rest uh, uh, is owned by the Israeli land authority uh, on on whose board the JNF has uh, 10 out of 22 seats. So the JNF uh, controls either directly or indirectly the land that belongs to millions of Palestinian refugees who are uh, denied their uh, right to return. And the JANET has been committing all of these crimes against us while wearing the garb of environmentalism. It's unfortunately um, recognized as a partner organization at the COP to uh, the UN convention to combat desertification. And it it participates in uh, UN conferences uh, on climate change uh, where it participates in discussions Regarding uh, uh, regarding solutions to the climate crisis, and in this way, the JNF takes a, a major role in um, or plays a major role, sorry, in in projecting an image or an environmentally friendly image of Israel. Also, it uh, it promotes uh, Israel uh, an image of Israel as a water power uh, through. Uh, through what is called the Blueprint campaign, which focuses on uh, developing water infrastructure in Nakba, not necessarily to find, of course, not to find, not to find solutions to the water crisis, uh, which is mainly man-made in Palestine, by the way, because of Israeli uh, apartheid, but in order to attract more and more settlers to to live uh, in nakab on on Palestinian-owned. Uh, on land, and uh, in addition to this, I think that the JNF has been like successful in um, in convincing like the world, or in having power in different countries, uh, in order to have to be registered as a charity where it collects money. Uh, in, in about 50 countries around the world in order to support the ethnic cleansing uh, of the Palestinian people. So the JNF, like more than any other example that exists is the perfect is example of how uh, green colonialism and green just intertwine in order to advance Israeli settler colonialism and to solidify its apartheid system.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Manel. Uh, and and thank you also for for um, speaking about the nakab the negev where a- anyone who's been watching has seen um bedouin protesting and um and and being arrested um by the dozens i'm not i'm not actually sure how many at this moment have already been arrested but there have been so many protests um, and we've also seen lots of uh, bedouin women leading them and and women and children being arrested um in this struggle against uh jnf forced JNF takeover uh, of their land. So um, thank you for that, that deeper dive into the JNF. And um, I want us to cover one more aspect of uh, environmental crisis before we're going to shift our, our view to talking about justice and talking about mobilization and resilience. Um, and the, and the, the, the next piece that I just want us to talk about is Jessica, I'm gonna ask you to talk about a little bit about um, Israel's investment Israel's uh, military investments, investments in global militarism, and the relationship between militarism and climate change, please. And I'm going to ask you, since we to try to be a little bit uh, condensed, thank you.
2: Yes, um, I'll try and, and keep it high level and, you know, start by mentioning that I think we're all very familiar with the ways in which Israeli militarism harms Palestinians and the Palestinian environment. We've talked a lot about that already. Um, And, you know, I think just to highlight one point from that, one one thing that's important to look at always is infrastructure. Khalil has talked about the impact of the repetitive bombardments on Gaza on infrastructure and how that's harmed water and, you know, how that's harmed electricity that's essential for processing sewage waste. Um, So always to to look, when we're looking at conflict, when we're looking at war and militarism, um, the impact on infrastructure is huge. The impact on, um, you know, the environmental harm that's caused by the kinds of, of, chemicals that are left behind by by bombings, the contamination of soil and water. Those are all issues that we see everywhere that, that war takes place. And globally, it's quite recognized that militarism is a leading contributor to climate change. So if you look at the U.S. military, it has a larger carbon footprint than about half of the countries in the world. So if you were to list all the countries in the world by climate footprint, the U.S. military would be about halfway up the list, Um, and then when you look at Israel, it's per capita military military expenditures are actually higher than the US's per capita military expenditures, and it's spending on uh, on the military as a percentage of its overall budget is also higher. It also consistently ranks in the top 10 countries in the world for weapons exports, so, Israel, it's, this is not new information, but it is heavily invested in militarism. So we have to have that discussion about Israel's role um, globally in militarism. And I think there are particularly, I think it's relevant to look at this in terms of um, what's happening now around the militarization and securitization of the world's borders, because one of the projected impacts of of the climate crisis is the displacement of people. We're seeing that at a, you know in at the scale of Palestine, but globally, the World Bank has projected that climate change could displace 180 million people from the global south by 2050. And we've seen that you know countries with a colonial history, after destabilizing a lot of the world, are then responding to that precariousness by making themselves into fortresses. And Israel is, um, you know, they're hoarding resources and then they're making sure nobody else can get in. And Israel is a global leader in controlling the movement of people. It has developed these systems and really honed them in the context of apartheid. And now it's exporting surveillance uh, systems and border control systems to the EU and to the U.S., we see Israeli technologies on the U.S.-Mexico border. We see them patrolling the EU Mediterranean, where migrants are drow- are left to drown in the sea. So this is a really uh, bleak picture of the future of a you know a climate apartheid future, where millions of people are on the move and countries are responding by just trying to lock down uh, their borders. So. Uh, definitely, you know, Israel is prominent in that conversation and divesting from militarism has to be a major focus of climate justice movements.
0: Thank you, Jessica. And thank you for returning the focus of a, of a question on militarism, focusing not just on, 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 on weapons and their uh, destruction and, and on munitions, but also on the, the actual people and um, what happens with people and that migration is um, so much a part of militarism, forced migration. Um, migration. So thank you for that. And I want to shift us, um, we have about 15 minutes left. Um, we're going to talk about justice and we're going to talk about social movements and resilience. And so um, Khalil, let's, let's start with you. Um, what is climate justice in Palestine? What, what is climate justice? What is climate justice for Palestine, please?
3: Okay. Um, so climate justice is quite the opposite of uh, climate apartheid, um, which I consider the uh, enabling the oppressed to protect themselves from climate vulner- vulnerability, to stop preventing them from accessing their natural resources, and quite to help them uh, even uh, to further their um, process of uh, uh, of a, a climate you know breakdown. Uh, Uh, But the problem in Palestine is that justice here is given for um, uh, an ethno-religious group, which is quite an uh, anachronistic and a 19th century idea, uh, you know, differentiating between people uh, based on their ethno-religious identity. And we have the uh, few years ago, the uh, nation-state law, Um, that was passed by Israeli authorities that perpetuates Israeli supremacy and clearly says that Israel is for Jewish people only. Um, And note that Israel doesn't um, have a constitution. Instead, it has a set of basic laws that have constitutional status. Um, Climate change uh, here in Palestine is politicized to serve uh, the interest of the colonial power. Um, and to further the oppression of the Palestinian people. So clearly and simply, we cannot undo this oppression unless we politicize the struggle for climate justice. And it has history teaches us that uh, the colonial powers um, make make benefit from every possible way to do, uh, to colonize the people. So if the people, the oppressed people, want to counter and to resist. Um, this, including you know, climate resistance, uh, is to like to undo and to reverse the colonial means to use them in favor of the oppressed people. Um, Israel has been repeating the slogan, "Making the desert bloom." Come on, guys! Can you make the desert bloom while committing crimes against um, uh, not only you know the people, the Palestinian people, but also the environment? I want to tell Israel that uh, it's not the fault of the environment uh, because it is not Jewish. Environment is environment. Environment is, na- is nature. You cannot make the, slow ca- the, the desert bloom while you are committing war crimes and, why, uh, and while you are saying that you are a green state, you are not a green state. And let me give you that information that Israel has been planting uh, trees uh, green trees in order to hide the um, villages from which the Palestinian people were ethnically cleansed by, back in 1948. Um, okay, they say that uh, you are uh, not able to resist, you know, uh, climate vulnerability because of because of your leadership. Uh, you did and you voted for them. I, I don't want to go for that, but it's like when we say that we have to banish the, the American people because they voted for Trump or they voted, voted for Biden. This is anachronistic and this is not fair. Um, what I'm saying is that apartheid is not agreeing. And justice for all people is green. You know, the, uh, the Zionist and the Israeli authorities say that, okay, we want peace. Okay, we, want, we also want peace, but we want peace with justice. We want our natural resources to be used by both, we and you. What we, the natives, um, are offering is a one climate for all, regardless of religion, ethnicity, and so on and so forth. So we, we are offering a secular democratic state for all people, climate for all people. And Hayo Mayer, who is a Holocaust survivor, and I like his quote, said that um, you cannot bring a house, uh, you cannot bring a mouse and put it in a room with uh, a lion and then close the room. You have to bring an elephant in support of the mouse. And the elephant here is the grassroots organization, Uh, is the uh, momentum, is the individuals, the people who are making events like this. This is very important, you know, event event and a very important activity in calling a spade a spade and putting, you know, dots on the letters and in uh, you know supporting a, not only not only because the Palestinian justice but also the justice for the Israeli people because we think and we believe that the task uh, for the Palestinian people is not only to decolonize the Palestinians but also to de- uh, decolonize the Israelis. Um, and we have you know joint the struggle. We are not against any Israel or any Jews. Uh, we love them and we have you know partnerships. Uh, we want, as I said, clim- one climate for all, regardless of anything.
0: Thank you, Khalil. Thank you for that, for being so clear about that. Um, I, I want to turn to you, Manal. What, what do you mean by climate justice? And will you talk to us about how Palestinians resist Israeli climate apartheid?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I agree with, uh, with Khalil's definition of climate justice and add that it's, it's to be able to um, to adapt to the climate crisis when we have sovereignty over our land and natural resources and when our full menu of rights um, is recognized. And that, um, the, the moment of when we realize climate justice is the moment when we dismantle Israel's settler, colonial and apartheid structure and fulfill our right to self-determination. That's the core of um, a climate justice. And talking about uh, our resistance uh, to the uh, to climate apartheid and to Israel's uh, larger project of settler colonialism, I mean we've never stopped struggling against that. And the this our struggle and resistance is uh, is seen in too many different ways. Um, one way, among other, is through the everyday practices of sumud, which translates to um, to steadfastness. It's the persistence of, uh, of Palestinian communities in the Jordan Valley, um, in the South Hebron Hills, in Naqab and other parts of Palestine uh, to, um, to try to navigate, to never leave their land or never accept to be de- detached from their land while navigating different ways uh, through which they, they try to uh, adapt to the climate crisis uh, using the minimum means they have um recently i I co-wrote a research paper focusing on the role of Palestinian women uh, in the South Hebron hills within their domestic sphere in uh, in tackling the uh, Israeli environmental destruction and uh, and settler colonial practices and I found out that they use uh, really creative and important ways in order to to um, to maintain a connection to the land. Um, For example, they uh, they preserve an indigenous or a pre-colonial way of agriculture that mainly depends on uh, on rain fed agriculture. Uh, They depend on natural fertilization of the land. And they also try to find creative ways uh, through which they harvest uh, water to be uh, used uh, uh, throughout the dry, um, dry months and the dry season. Uh, especially in the summer, uh, that's one way. Uh, another way is uh, of like to resist um, Israeli climate apartheid is um, the fact that the Palestinian uh, civil society is becoming more and more dependent on uh, solar energy uh, uh, as a response to uh, Israel's denial um, uh, of uh, Palestinian Israel's denial of access to um, electricity. I mean. Uh, it, Again, that these apartheid practices that are um, implemented against Palestinians in area C. Uh, also, uh, tree planting uh, is another way in order to, uh, to respond to Israeli climate apartheid. Uh, every year we plant thousands of uh, trees in different parts of Palestine. And tree planting is for us uh, like an environmental and a political tool of resistance. And it also strengthens the strengthens the connection between uh, Palestinians and uh, and their land and it is metaphorically speaking it is a tangible image of the steadfast Palestinian who refused to be detached from uh, their land. Uh, Last but not least, uh, we resist Israeli climate apartheid in order to to realize climate justice through regular protest Um, uh, in in different parts of Palestine against Israeli illegal um, settlement expansion and against the plunder of our natural resources. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Manal. Um, And we're going to to come back to you in a couple of of minutes, short short minutes, um, and end with you asking you about uh, what it looks like um, to engage with this work internationally. But we'll come back to that. I want to actually, shift to you right now, Jessica, and ask you about um, how you think that understanding climate apartheid in Palestine should or does affect movements working for uh, solutions to the climate crisis overall? And how might climate justice activists in Palestine organize with other movements, both to end apartheid in Palestine and also to fight for climate justice across the world?
2: Thanks. And thanks again, everybody, for being part of the conversation today. It's been really insightful and I've loved listening to my co-panelists and all of your comments. So I I think this is a broad question that really, you know, it deserves its own entire panel. And so I'll keep my answer a bit broad. I think that ultimately, for me, understanding climate apartheid in Palestine um, has kind of guided me toward more um, I think a more radical and transformative relationship with communities that are on the front lines of climate crisis. And that's what I would hope that other environmental groups, other climate and environmental activists can also gain by understanding um, the situation in Palestine. Just the recognition that, um, that of the importance of looking toward the root causes of the climate crisis and toward um, positioning ourselves in solidarity with those who are most impacted and why because those are the communities that are already so deeply invested in resisting the systems that are you know that are destroying both human rights and the environment so i think that um, in that sense i think this is a transformative conversation for the movement and there's a lot of movement education left to be done in my opinion i also think that um, you know, this conversation challenges the depoliticization that sometimes happens around climate change. And on that, I would point you toward the recent article by Muna Dejani in El She talks about depoliticization and normalization in the context of, of climate justice in Palestine and speaks to it much, much better than I could. But, you know, once we recognize that climate change is a political issue and that it does require political solutions, Um, I think that we can engage in more meaningful organizing. And I saw that there was a question in the chat about the EcoPeace Initiative. I I personally am not very familiar with that initiative, so I can't answer that question, but I will say that um, Muna Dijani does mention that initiative in, in that piece. So maybe that's a starting point. Um, but I also think you know, this conversation sort of points us in the direction of looking out for false solutions, as I mentioned before. There's a, a lot of techno-solutionism in the climate movement, especially coming from governments and corporations, which is just this idea that like, if we just invest in enough research and if we just have the right technology, we're going to find like this magic bullet, so to speak, that's going to get us out of this pinch that we found ourselves in. And I think, you know, I'm not rejecting the role of technology in addressing the climate crisis by any means. But what I'm saying is that sometimes that comes at the expense of looking at the political dimensions of this issue. And sometimes it's also, you know, favoring, again, the kind of corporate actors and that have that are looking to consolidate their power through this crisis. And, you know, so we need to be wary, I think, of those kinds of of solutions. Um, and then, you know, also just this whole conversation brings out so many shared experiences between communities that, um, that are, you know, subject to colonialism and militarism, militarism. And of course, those experiences are not identical, they're unique, but there are overlaps that I think help us build power and come together around um, things that serve, you know, the interests of communities on the front lines. And then in the U.S. context, particularly, just to get a little, you know, more concrete as I wrap up, I think we—I would love to see different communities coming together from the environment, environmental movement around ending military funding to Israel. And I also think, you know, we can Palestinians can have a lot to add in terms of the conversation around bringing a more global and decolonial perspective to things like the Green New Deal. Um, where it's kind of missing currently and uh, challenging the way that the U.S. military right now is kind of trying to reposition itself as an asset in the climate struggle, which I think we need to reject and say, you know, we're not the, the path through this is not further investment in militarism. It's, it's the kind of invest divest framework that's emerging from so many different social justice movements. Thanks, Sarah-Ann, for for the conversation.
0: Thank you, Jessica. Thank you for all of that. Um, We are in our last questions, the last questions for Khalil, the last question for Manal, and then sadly, sadly, we will have to end, um, though this conversation is absolutely wonderful. And and like Jessica said, I think we could do a whole conversation just focused on on this question of of climate justice and organizing around for climate justice and, and what it looks like. Um, and Jessica just referred to uh, Muna Dajani's article, how, climate, how Palestine's climate apartheid is being depoliticized. Um, it's a very powerful article. I recommend it to everyone. We've, we have posted the, the link um, on, on our website and, and, uh, and, and in the chat. And uh, Khalil, I actually wanna turn to you to talk to us a, a little bit about what, what the struggle for climate justice in Gaza and in Palestine more broadly um, can and should look like, and also w- what your thoughts are on, on this question. What does it mean for the climate struggle to be depoliticized? And, um, and, and what do you suggest, recommend, um, push for at, at, uh, to counter that, that, that depoliticization?
3: Um, okay, since we are suffering from um, a multitude system of oppression, Uh, it's impossible to separate between uh, different forms of oppression. We cannot end the occupation and colonization of the land while our natural resources are still colonized, as I said before. Uh, So the struggle against colonialism, racism, militarization, uh, and our struggle for climate justice, economic justice, social justice, um, is interwoven, interconnected, interconnected, uh, Palestinians, like people, any people in the world, uh, just seek for their climate justice uh, di- by different ways, guaranteed under the international law. Uh, if we, um, regarding your uh, question, uh, if we de our struggle, so it's not struggle. It's not uh, uh, any any further struggle of, you know, Palestinian people. Seek out apartheid. There is no climate apartheid, and there is no justification for fighting Israel uh, or fighting Israel apartheid. I would definitely love to live in this state if it is not built upon and by and from and through apartheid. So, if we take this politics, political flavor, so uh, this is a message that the Palestinian people are fighting for nothing. Politics is the root of the climate apartheid in Palestine, and if we want to uproot, um, you know, climate uh, apartheid in Palestine, we have to uproot um, this from a political point of view.
0: Wonderful. Khalil, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, Manal, I want you to take us home, finish. You, you get the last word, please. And I actually have a, a, a two-part question for you. Um, how can environmental justice groups and people in the US and across the world support Palestinians' struggle for climate justice. And, and can you just tell us how the work on climate justice is interwoven with the broader work on ending apartheid and um, and the broader work on decolonization?
1: Sure. Thank you a lot, Sarah. Uh, yeah, to address the, your the first part of your question um, about what role can, um, environmental groups can play, I think it's important uh, and central to uh, to hold Israel accountable for its crimes. I mean, the climate justice groups uh, across the world and uh, people people across the world and governments uh, must hold Israel accountable and end Israel's impunity by imposing uh, targeted targeted sanctions on uh, on Israeli apartheid um by also supporting palestinian calls on the un to investigate apartheid israel uh, and impose a military embargo on israel uh I, I i also think it's significant to um to support uh campaigns led by the bds call for boycott divestment and sanctions that uh challenge or resist Israeli greenwashing like the campaign against Israel's national water company, Mikrod and uh, and Netafim. Um, I also think that uh, climate justice groups um, internationally can play a role in delegitimizing uh, the JNF um, uh, in different environmental uh, spaces and challenging its greenwashing uh, actions and efforts. Also, climate justice groups uh, can support uh, Palestinian-led initiatives uh, in order to to revoke the charitable status of the uh, GNF by being a grassroots force that pressure their governments in order to to never allow uh, the um, charitable law in in different countries to be used for uh, or exploited for uh, ethnic cleansing as what the GNF um, is doing. Another aspect of uh, support to to our struggle uh, for climate justice, uh, especially in in the US, is to support the Defund Racism Campaign, which is a Palestinian-led movement uh, that's trying to stop Israeli settler organizations that are registered as charities in the the US from exploiting uh, the US charitable law. Um, that's really an important uh, and a key campaign in order to stop money from flowing into palestine to ethnically cleanse us and uh, to build illegal settlements and also it's uh, it's important to uh, to for the us citizens to uh, to tell their us members of congress uh, to support uh, the defunding the human rights um, of Palestinian children and families under Israeli Military Occupation Act, uh, which is at, um, at H.R. 2590, um, in order to, um, to hold Israel accountable and, uh, and its uh, impunity. Uh, the other part of the question, which is how uh, our struggle for climate justice is interwoven with uh, decolonization, I think. Yeah, uh, i think jessica and khalil answered it uh, i just wanna end by emphasizing uh that because israel uh, uh to environmental degradation and uh, and to uh, disrupting the relationship between palestinians and their uh, their land um i do think that it's important to uh to support our anti-colonial struggle in order to stop further environmental degradation. Thank you so much for this insightful discussion.
0: Manal, thank you. Um, thank you, Jessica. Thank you, Manal. Thank you, Khalil. This was a, a really, really powerful discussion. It was um, extraordinary to get to hear all of you um, and your hear you bring your expertise and your passion, all of you, so thank you so much. Um, I need, to, I need to say one thing, one caveat, which is that the Foundation for Middle East Peace is not a lobbying organization. We do not lobby for legislation. Um, we are happy to provide a platform for people who are um, campaigning and, um, and, and for activists, obviously, but I just need to, to, to state for the record that we are not a lobbying organization and, and, um, and don't promote legislation. I am so grateful to you all for joining us today. So grateful that we got to have this this conversation. Uh, And I want to thank everyone who joined us or listened to this event. We are really glad that we got to share this conversation with you, with all of our listeners. Uh, We tried to weave in the questions that you um, put into the Q&A box. So thank you very much. And we will share all of the questions that you asked with our panelists so that they can know what what you, the audience, wants to hear. Please, everyone, check back at the FMEP website, www.fmep.org, for a list of resources relating to the conversation that we just had, for announcements of upcoming events, for our webinars and podcasts. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us. See you next time. Thanks so much.